Hello and welcome to Women with Balls, where I, Katie Balls, speak to women at the top of their respective games about their passions, their battles and what makes them tick. Today I'm joined by Liz Truss, Chief Secretary to the Treasury. Liz has so far had an illustrious cabinet career, which has seen her hold a variety of briefs from DEFRA to Justice, and now to the Treasury, where she has quickly established her status as one of the most important bean counters in the country. Liz has warned her cabinet colleagues that it's not macho to demand more money, has said Destiny's Child had it right when they celebrated all the honeys making money, and has also argued that millennials are not as left-wing as they are often portrayed. And that's before we even get to her Instagram, which we will. Now, Liz, before we go any further, I thought it would be good to work out how you got to where you are for us who want some desk inspiration. So growing up, you grew up in Leeds, where you describe your parents as being to the left of Labour. That's right, yeah. My um, my mum was actually a member of the CND, so my first political experience was being taken on a CND march, talking about nuclear bombs, which I didn't really understand at the time. I think I was age seven or eight. But my mum's always been a bit of an activist. She was concerned about the world and wanted to get involved. So I guess that's why I first got interested in politics. But after a while, I turned away from the left wing. I was quite inspired by what was going on in politics in the 1980s. You know, Mrs Thatcher was having a major impact and I found that really fascinating. And on your journey to the Conservative Party, it's safe to say you perhaps stopped somewhere along the way. Because <laughs> if we look at your Oxford University days, you were the president of the Liberal Democrats, weren't you? I was, yeah. It was a youthful era. You know, we all make mistakes as teenagers. Some people take drugs. Other people join the Liberal Democrats. I mean, what, <laughs> what could I say? But I saw the light. I saw the light. I studied economics. I realised that they'd got it wrong when they were talking about putting a penny on income tax and... They also wanted to join the euro at the time, which I thought was a bad idea. So I plucked up the courage to join the Tory party and defy all of my parents and people I knew. And that was in 1996 that you joined the Tory party? Yeah, just uh, by low. <laughs> <laughs> and not a particularly perhaps fashionable time to be joining the Conservative no. party, if you look at the context. Um, so what was it which kind of triggered you to actually sign up? Well, I think I was, I love talking, I love debating, I loved ideas. And even though the Tories were majorly unfashionable, it was the time when Blair was sexy and exciting and people were joining New Labour. I just thought they were a bunch of automatons and they were quite shallow. And a lot of the things that I believed in, people having more freedom, people having control over their own money, The Labour Party seemed to want to junk those ideas, so that is why I became a Tory. But I did slightly despair of some of the ways that it came across, things like the Back to Basics in the 1990s. It was a suicidal set of public announcements. And your path to becoming an MP wasn't without problems or obstacles. Um, you... Seems to be a familiar theme, I know. <laughs> you you ran in a few different seats before you actually got the seat that you won. Were there points along the way that you kind of thought, is it worth it, or were you always quite determined to be a Never. member of Parliament? The fire was burning, Katie, and it would not be put out. I just, I really, really wanted to do it, and almost the more I got knocked back, the more determined it made me, because I thought, why shouldn't I do it? And... I do want to contribute. It is really exciting. And even the process of selection, even the process of going and putting yourself forward, 
can be quite enjoyable. You get to know other people on the circuit. A lot of the people I'm now MPs with, we faced each other <laughs> across graduate lecturers. I remember one selection, which is the seat Michael Gove's got. I think Jacob Reese Mogg was running for that. Me, Andrea Ledsom. So, <laughs> so. what's it like going into battle with Jacob Reese Mogg? Well, all I remember is that he slightly unnerved me by bringing, was it the House of Pooh Corner along? Uh, and he was sitting there reading that before the interview. And I was wondering, where have I gone wrong? Once you were an elected an MP, you quickly were promoted. You were deemed a Cameron cutie. How did you feel about that tag? Well, there's loads of these tags bandied around, you know, Blair Babes, Cameron cuties. I think it doesn't really bother me one way or the other, but what frustrates me is being put in a category because everybody's an individual. I came into politics for my own reason. Yes, I'm a female politician, but that isn't what defines me. And so... It's not the term itself, it's more just being seen part of a group of people rather than somebody who's got their own ideas. And the insinuation, I guess, that perhaps one of the reasons you're being promoted is because of your gender and... I suppose it's better to be called cute than ugly. (laughs) So you quickly promoted and you kind of moved across the different cabinet briefs and your first full front bench position was at DEFRA, um, where I think some people who didn't keep a close eye on politics, probably first came to know you uh, about a specific speech at conference in which you stood up no, for... I haven't been allowed to give a speech since. <laughs> <laughs> in which you stood up for British cheese and said that it was a disgrace that we import two-thirds of our cheese. Um, what did you make of the fuss after that? Because it did seem to go viral and perhaps not in a fully I was, positive way. I was amazed and I think, I think I was one of the first memes, so I do... <laughs> But it didn't even come out straight away. So I thought the speech had gone quite well. But I think a lot of people are quite two-faced. They told me it was brilliant. Probably behind my back they were saying something different. And then it got on Have I Got News For You? And after that, that's what made it a sort of uh, viral thing. How do you feel about our cheese imports now? Well, it's still still not good enough, Katie. It still isn't good enough. (laughs) (laughs) Although it's getting better. Exports are up. So obviously then you moved to Justice and onto that to the Treasury where you are today. And I think if we're kind of looking back at, I suppose, your philosophy from your time you know, in government, one of the things that struck me was if you feel that you were treated differently because you were a woman in some of those briefs. And I guess one good example was when you moved to Justice and you received quite a lot of criticism. Mm-hmm. I think Lord Faulkner said that you were an ambitious middle-ranking cabinet minister whose main ambition was to go further up the greasy pole and uh, with no known signs of independence. And a lot of that criticism seemed to be the fact that you weren't a trained lawyer. Mm-hmm even though your predecessors, Chris Grayling and Michael Gove, were technically guilty of the same sin, but did it seem to get near as much abuse? I don't call not being a lawyer a sin. <laughs> In fact, I think it's a virtue. But uh, <laughs> it's always hard to tell, you know, and as a woman in politics, you do face a particular sort of criticism sometimes, and there is this myth aboard, and I, I blame the thick of it with the sort of Nicola Murray-type minister, the sort of sensible woman who's a bit clueless he doesn't really have a mind of her own and just gets bossed around by spin doctors and I think that myth sometimes perpetuates and I am an independent-minded person but I don't deny being ambitious what's wrong with that 
And when you were at DEFRA, how, how was your experience there kind of balancing motherhood with your first cabinet front bench role? Well, it was great. Um, great job. And of course, all the chocolate that I got sent was uh, delighted. My kids were, my kids were delighted by the kettle chips. Thank you very much for them for sending those Chris over. But all of these jobs, you know, they are time consuming. You do have to balance family life with them. And they're also quite out of hours jobs. So in justice, for example, we had some really severe riots at prison, which took place over the weekend. So I had to go into the office to sort that out. In DEFRA, we had some really bad floods over Christmas. I remember one occasion when uh, we had to do a phone call on the flooding, uh, a sort of Cobra-style call with officials, and I actually had my kids in the back of the car with all of our Christmas shopping. And we were talking on the, the phone and we were parked up in some lay-by in Stratford. And I was talking about the floods and at one point my kids started to touch the shopping and I shouted out, don't touch the turkey on the middle of the phone call and all the officials like, like, what are you talking about? And I think sometimes it's that, it's a slightly weird nature of politics that you can get caught up in really serious issues at the same time as you know, many people be off work. And when it comes to moving, I suppose, up the ranks in Parliament, there's often been a criticism that it can be harder for female MPs, partly because the way the system works is you're supposed to be a PPS or a glorified bag carrier, that's um, not a favour of the term. And by attending lots of these events, eventually you are picked for promotion. Do you think the system is skewed in favour of either gender, or do you think it's actually probably much fairer now than it used to be? Well, in some ways, politics is more fair than other workplaces where you know you have to put yourself forward. Whereas in politics, because it's the prime minister's decision, you don't have to think, I've got a pitch for a pay rise or I've got a pitch for this job. You get you get called in and you got asked to do particular things. And I think there are all kinds of different ways of making your views known or you, know, you do a good speech or you maybe write a paper talking about your views or you take an interest in a particular subject. And I think, of course, the Prime Minister has to balance all sorts of features when they're thinking about who to promote. I think most people get a fair crack of the whip and get get those opportunities in politics. I think it's actually becoming an MP in the first place that's probably the hardest bit. In, in what sense? In kind of getting in terms the time... Of the time and effort you have to put in and I think certainly quite a lot of female friends of mine have been put off by the the sort of rejection phase if you like <laughs> of going for it and you, know, you do have to continue and be really really persistent I think once people are elected as MPs there are lots of different ways to succeed you can be you know successful in a select committee different ministerial positions and I of course, you know, life is unfair and there's all kinds of difficulties that happen. But what I'm saying is it's not, you're not required to be here all hours. You're not, I think in the olden days, you know, a lot of people would spend overnights in Parliament because of the voting. There's a lot more of a drinking culture, which I think has changed now. Um, now, one of the things you made head headlines for recently, which you mentioned in the intro to this podcast, was a speech in which she appeared to chide colleagues for trying to be macho when it comes to asking for more money. Do you think that there is a difference perhaps between male and female colleagues when it comes to how they approach the task of getting more money or, or just in general, what was your point more about people showing off? 
My point was that real toughness comes from taking difficult decisions. It doesn't come from posturing. And it wasn't, I mean, most of the colleagues in question are male. Most of the spending ministries are run by male ministers. But my point was that to be really tough in government, it's easy to spend more money. It's hard to take on the kind of vested interests in And each government department has its own set of people who want more cash, whether it's lawyers in the Ministry of Justice, whether it's teachers or head teachers in education, or people with particular interests. And my point is that it's the posturing that I think is problematic when we're trying to keep the budget within, within its set lines. And when we're looking at the Conservative Party today, there does seem that there is an inner battle about spending. There are some people who, perhaps like Nick Bowles, who declare that austerity is over. <laughs> and it's easy for him to say. Yeah, and it's time to splash the cash. And obviously in, in your role is to stop, stop them from doing that. Do you think that most Conservatives still agree with the principle of, you know, small states trying to limit budgets? Or do you think there has been a sea change in recent years about spending? The Conservative Party is still a party that believes in low tax. And if you believe in low tax, you have to believe in controlling spending because if you increase a deficit, that's just tax that people are going to have to pay later on. So one of my efforts as Chief Secretary is to try and make the connection in people's minds that for every penny we spend more in public spending, that is money that's going to have to come from the taxpayer. And it's easy to say it will be paid by the big corporations, it will be paid by rich people. We know that ultimately it's ordinary people that have to pay that. And that is that is what the next election is going to be about. Do people feel their wages are getting better, that they're feeling better off? If they feel there's a really high burden on them in terms of the money that's being taken in tax, the charges they're going to have to pay, that is going to be bad for the government. So what I'm asking colleagues to do is think about the big picture. It's not just about spending in a particular area. If the bill goes up, it's not the sort of somebody else that's going to have to pay. It's, it's, it's all of us. And has that involved a few awkward meetings in the Treasury? <laughs> Every meeting in the Treasury is always awkward. <laughs> now, the other thing that recently I think has amassed you slight a slight cult following outside of cheese is your social media presence. <laughs> Those two things are related, of course, because the cheese is the meme. Yeah, maybe it's what, what triggered you to go into this path. <laughs> but I think it's safe to say that definitely amongst the cabinet, you have the most active Instagram account, probably the most followers. I haven't checked, Katie, I haven't checked. <laughs> and also I'll go on, and check now. And also on Twitter, why is it that you use social media in a way that probably most conservatives don't at the moment? Well, I love social media because it's instant, you can say what you want, you can get messages across in a different way. I love using pictures and photos. It's fun as well. I mean, it's huge fun and I think I speak to lots of people who just don't watch the news. They don't read the papers and That's particularly true, I think, of people who are under 40 or under 35. And I do believe that if we're going to communicate with people, we need to be in the medium that everybody is using to talk about. But I just find it, I I find it fits better with my life. I I don't go home and watch the 10 o'clock news. I don't often listen to news programmes during the day. I might read bits of newspaper articles, but I always read them off Twitter. And if that's the way I'm thinking as a politician, if I'm somebody who, you know, works for a company 
I'm probably even less likely to read those things. So that's that's the way I think we need to think about communicating. It is something that the Conservative Party has identified as something they want to work on. I think recently MPs were given an Instagram masterclass, but oddly you weren't asked to lead it. <laughs> well, that's very flattering, very flattering, Katie. I, of course it's what we need to do, but it, to me it's about attitude and what is different about social media and... You, know, you might love, like or loathe Donald Trump, but he has used social media to get across a different point of view and get, get directly to people. So you can't use lines to take. You can't just read off a list of statements that everybody in the party agrees. It's got to be what you personally think. And I think that is what everybody in the Tory party need to do. And I think that's quite exciting because it's about freedom of expression. It's about advancing arguments. And that is why it's been successfully used by other politicians, I think, that's the lesson we as a Tory party need to learn. And then using your obviously experience from working in government and obviously now in a high role in the Treasury, one of the questions we've been asking everyone who appears on this podcast is their tips for trying to get a pay rise. <laughs> <laughs> you have to sign off some, I think, don't you? And it's, yes. um, so I was wondering what your advice would be. Well, obviously my advice to government ministers is be nice to the chief secretary. Uh, but but the, the advice, I, I mean, it's what I was saying about applying for seats. You've got to be relentless. And you've got to be, you've got to have no shame uh, in putting yourself forward and saying, I am capable of doing this job, I'm capable of taking on this responsibility. And you have to have a go. I think in Britain, we are too afraid of failure. And sometimes you only learn when you cock things up. And that can be difficult for people to accept. But the idea you just go through a perfect life, you're constantly advancing up the tree, you never make a mistake. That is not realistic about anyone who's ever been successful. So I'd encourage people to try, even if it doesn't always work. Now, for the final section, moving to the present day and the current political situation we find ourselves in, obviously Brexit seems to dominate everything. What's interesting is, although you were for Remain during the referendum, you're often regarded as one of the most optimistic voices on Brexit, at least in the Treasury might not be saying that much. Um, Why do you think Brexit provides quite a lot of opportunities? It's an exciting time, something we don't always hear. People voted for Brexit, and I was surprised when it happened, but what I recognise about what people were doing is they were voting for a shake-up, they were voting for something different, and they were voting for something new. And I do think that's exciting. I think post-Brexit gives us more freedom of manoeuvre to do things differently, whether that's trade deals around the world, whether that's some of our policy options here in the UK over things like tax, what we spend money on, whole areas like my old brief at Department of Environment. It's totally transformed. You know, We had no control over that. Now we're going to be deciding our environment policy, our farming policy. I think those possibilities are exciting. And you know, we now need to set out what that future vision is post-Brexit. And this is a great country. We have a very strong economy. We've got a brilliant culture way of life. And I just don't buy the argument that Brexit in itself could be, you know, the the sort of damaging beer moth that people talk about. I think the future is what we make it. And we can make it positive. And one of the things that's come up in these no-deal notices is something we need to prepare for is cigarette packaging. <laughs> but, but the reason I bring this up... Is this was, a personal issue for you? 
Well, no, well, in 2015, if, if, if I'm correct, you were one of, I think, two MPs to not vote with the government when it mm. was organising plain packaging. Mm. So I was just, and I think it probably relates to, I mean, you've always said that people should be up, able to make their own minds. I, I think you perhaps, for your think tank freer and do that. But I was just wondering um, if you thought that was an opportunity with uh, cigarette packaging to be done with Brexit, or where you stand now on that. Well, given, given only two people voted for it, I can... I think the likelihood of anything getting through Parliament is rather slim, but it does put, you know, my my overall view is that when people are adults, they need to be able to make decisions about things that affect their own health, what they eat. I think it's very dangerous to think we can tell people what to do. And actually, by people taking responsibility, they can lead fuller lives. So that that is my full view. I don't think there's likely to be any change on the basis of uh, the vote vote count you've just outlined there. When we look at that kind of end of the that point in the conservative spectrum of politics, you are part of the launch of Freer, the think tank, which we've had a, a plethora of think tanks basically arise. But um, I think Freer free seems to define itself on trying to empower the individual. And one of the quite interesting things that you've said in relation to that is about young voters. And it does seem often that the left like to claim a monopoly on younger voters and the idea that they're naturally left-wing. But do you think that you seem to suggest actually you think um, inside they're quite right-wing? Definitely. And, you know, there's been lots of opinion surveys who've shown young people are more likely to believe in lower taxes, more likely to be pro-business than older generations. And I think when you see what people are doing now, starting their own businesses, there is a much more of a self-starting, motivated group of people coming through. I think that's great. And I think that this idea that there are a bunch of snowflakes who need to be protected is completely wrong. And one of the, the debates in politics is how do we make it easier for those motiv- motivated young people to make their way in life. One of the big issues, I think, is housing. You know, young people are almost like the new entrants in the same way as, you know, you've got big incumbents in markets and you want to empower those small companies. In the same way, I want to make sure the next generation do feel that they have the opportunities and the say-so to be able to do what they want and set the future. It can't just be dominated by those who who are already you know well-established. What would you like the Conservative Party's pitch to younger voters to be? Lower taxes, more houses, and more opportunities. I mean, the Jeremy Corbyn is selling like a completely false pipe dream. We know that he wants to control the height of the economy. He wants to close down stuff like Uber, Airbnb. All of the modern economy would be subject to a tech tax, you know, the late, you know, Sadiq Khan has got a battle with Uber in London. We know that they instinctively hate things that are about modernity, that are about freedom, that are about freedom of expression. And that's why us Tories need to take the opportunity to galvanise people who believe in those things. I think that the arguments are on our side and the ideas are on our side. It's about making the pitch in a way that communicates well. Now, one pitch you have been making clearly is about the green belt, which I think while you're on holiday might have got your Daily Mail front page on a rival podcast. <laughs> uh, I don't know. I don't read the mail when I'm on holiday. <laughs> it's also that debate within the Conservative Party about how to build more homes. And at the moment, it certainly seems like James Brokenshire that 
housing minister is very um, wary of building too much on the green belt. Do, do you think that's something the government should do more of or do, do you think they have the balance about right at the moment? Well, we, we are building more houses. We're committed to build 300,000 a year. I'm very much on the side of making sure we build enough so it's affordable because there's all kinds of arguments about why housing is so expensive in London. The average rent is 50% of salary. You know, that's pretty high. And to me, the, the basic economics of this, until you expand supply enough, then the price is not going to be you know, low enough for many, many people to afford. And I think one of the worrying things, you, know, you mentioned that I grew up in Leeds. I moved to London in the 1990s. I was able to afford to rent while I worked for Shell, which was my first job. What I worry about is people now growing up, are they going to be able to move to where those opportunities are, where those jobs are? And we know that there's been a 25% reduction in people moving for work. And that that is hitting opportunities and the Tory party needs to be the party of opportunity. And uh, this leads us on nicely to that, you know, a range of final questions. But um, one being, if you were prime minister for the day, what would you do? <laughs> I'm not sure if I could build a million houses, but maybe. <laughs> and it certainly wouldn't be done by the government, by the way. I'll just make that clear. <laughs> but that should be our number one priority. And then um, finally, when it comes to your political heroes, or just your heroes in general, who is your political hero? Mrs Thatcher was a massive influence. I think lots of politicians of my generation would would say that. I'm quite interested in some of the 19th century radicals who wanted to shake things up. You know, Peel, Gladstone, those types of people who wanted to do do things differently. Right, and then the last thing is, and the final question is, why do you think it is currently a good time to be a girl? Because we often hear that it's a bad time to be a girl with Brexit, Trump <laughs> and so forth. Well, I don't think it's a, ever been a better time to be a girl. And Britain is the best country in the world to be female. I've got no doubt about that. I've got two daughters growing up. They have huge opportunities. The world at their fingertips is only going to get bigger as we leave the European Union and more opportunities are made available in the, in the wider world as well. I think it's fantastic. And often I think the things that hold us back are internal rather than external and what I'd encourage people to do is sort of lean in, put themselves forward and take advantage of the opportunities that are out there. But I think things are getting better. Thanks, Liz. And do join me in two weeks' time when I'll be joined by Dame Helena Morrissey, the city slicker, mother of nine, who is also on a mission to get more women in the boardroom. <laughs>